We are live tonight with School Psych Podcast. Welcome, everybody. We have a really great topic to talk about that's relevant to a lot of us. Um, I wanted to first, before we go ahead and introduce our co-hosts and then our guests, talk about um, how I um, kind of stumbled across Monica. Um, I was in the School Psychology um, Forum. If anybody's familiar with that Facebook group, it's a NASP group. Uh, group and there's been a lot of activity there lately as far as people just posting questions of can you give me help on interpreting these scores what assessments do you use for this situation what are interventions going on you know even um, I forgot my manual at my other school can somebody score these uh, these scores for me it's a really active and awesome group and somebody had posted a question about an ELL student and how to evaluate them and there was a whole bunch of responses and um, Monica happened to chime in and gave a really detailed amazing response and I was just blown away and clearly um, was like okay this this lady knows what she's talking about and I messaged her and she was kind enough to come on and agree to join us tonight and even after talking with her I kind of looked at some of her credentials and was really uh, blown away at her experiences so we're really excited to have her on tonight um, but first we're going to introduce our co-hosts um, so I'm Rachel um, school psychologist working in Maryland um, Rebecca hi I'm Rebecca I'm a Myself, you guys too. What's that? Do you hear, do you hear um, my my voice? Uh, okay, that's better. I'm good now. Sorry. Um, I'm a school psychologist working in the state of Connecticut, and I want to tell you guys how to participate. So we have two uh, pages on Facebook. I have my page, School Psych, your school psychologist, and you can comment right on the top post, which is about tonight's. Um, psyched podcast. You can comment right under. You can message me. Also, our School Psyched podcast page, the top post is about our podcast tonight. So please ask questions, um, have comments, anything, anything that you'd like to share um, could be really helpful to our conversation. And also on Twitter using the hashtag Psyched Podcast. Anna? Hi, I'm Anna. I'm a school psychologist in um, New York State, and uh, we did a little poll on our event page to get uh, the opinions of fellow school psychs out there on what they do when they're working with English language learners, how involved they are, and we got a nice spread of responses. Um, the majority, we had 11 votes, um, the majority of psychs who responded said they complete the evaluation of their students. When an English language learner student is referred for an evaluation, they're the ones who complete it. Pretty much they're left to their own devices, which I'm in that pool myself. Um, the second most popular result was my district has bilingual psych or psychs who complete the evaluation. Eight votes for that one. Um, we have four bilingual psychs who also responded, so obviously they would complete that evaluation. Um, four others work with an interpreter to complete evaluations. And then um, two other two people had um, district contracts out for people who um, spoke the student's native language. So it sounds like there's a wide variety of experiences out there. Some people have resources and people to do really adequate evaluations, and some people are kind of winging it on their own. So um, to talk about this topic and um, to bring a lot of knowledge and expertise, we have Monica Oganes. Um, Monica, thank you so much for joining us. She's a Latina co-chair for the NASP Multicultural Affairs Committee, a bilingual school psychologist with uh, many years of experience and um, practices in different cities, which is really cool. Um, so thank you so much for joining us. Um, could, would you mind telling us a little bit about your background? 
Sure. Uh, hello, everybody. I'm so excited to be here. And I really want to, first of all, commend you because you are amazing. I cannot believe that there's actually people out there that take time out of their busy schedules to uh, you know, come together and to talk about different topics that are relevant to school psychology. Uh, definitely, we're all excited about school psychology. It's the career that, to me, this is my passion. This is what I really wanted to do for a long time, and I'm doing it now. You know, I'm so excited that you know I got to be here. And yes, the school uh, psychology forum is so active, and I try to you know chime in as much as possible. And so many people asking questions, so many people wanting to know how to do so many things. And I have learned so much from reading people's responses on not just ELLs, but just different topics. So it is really evident that school psychology is out there and people are seeking support, consultation. So I'm really excited, you know, really excited and uh, grateful to you guys for even, you know, having me here and so forth. So. Thank you. <laughs> I'm thrilled to have you. Yes. So um, how did I uh, start it? You know, I, I started working in the public schools. So I worked for over a decade in uh, Orange County Public Schools in Orlando, Florida. Um, uh, very early on in my career, I got involved in the, in the Florida Association of School Psychologists and, and you know, serving the, the diversity committee. I served as president later on and so forth. But I also got involved with NASP. And NASP, you know, really brought it to a very high level, I think. And I was fortunate to be uh, appointed to be the Latino co-chair for the NASP Multicultural Affairs Committee. And if you have not visited our page, it is amazing. It has so much information for ELLs, for supporting students that are culturally and linguistically diverse. Uh, we have an amazing culturally competent uh, uh, topic page with different resources so please visit NASP and uh, there are so many things that I want to talk about tonight so but uh, that's pretty much my background I'm in private practice now I do have offices in Miami and Orlando but I also uh, really enjoy speaking about ELL issues so I visit a lot of districts um, all over different states uh, training school psychologists training teachers, uh, you know, special educators. I've had people from the Department of Education come to my talks. So it really is very evident that ELL issues are being paid attention to. You know, cultural and linguistic diversity is no longer, you know, a thing that, you know, so only the bilingual school psychologists should know about. You know, I think that with the immigration patterns that we're going to see, in uh, some slides that I have for you, it, it is evident that we all need to be culturally competent because best practice can only be best practice if we're culturally competent. So I'm excited to be here tonight. Very cool. <laughs> and you prepared a PowerPoint presentation where you're going to share a little information for yes. us. We really yes. appreciate that. Cool. Um, so I'm going to share it. And um, let's see here. And I, I noticed too that, um, and we posted the NASP position statement um, on, uh, you know, bilingual issues yeah. um, from the drive, and I noticed that you assisted in co-authoring that, so I thought that was pretty yeah. awesome. I was like, oh, yes. That, that we just uh, had it approved by the delegate assembly, and uh, it's actually a long process. NASP has, does a really good job, and making sure that those position statements go through a lot of eyes and, uh, you know, uh, really uh, well thought out. So it was a couple of years in the making, and this year, and I, that's one of the topics I'm going to talk about, we did um, bring our position statement to fruition, so uh, it's out there for everybody. So that's something I will definitely cover tonight. Mm -hmm. So uh, do you guys see my screen? I have it on. Yep, you're good. We're okay. One. Okay. 
So we tried it earlier, and I can't do full screen, so I'm going to keep it like that. So hopefully you can see it. And feel free to interrupt or ask me questions as I go. But uh, basically, you know, we always want to know what ELL, why they struggle, why ELL struggle, because they're not really doing as well as uh, monolingual speakers, as we know, and we want to know how to improve their learning outcomes. So we would, as school psychologists, we would need to know, you know, how to assess their uh, educational linguistic needs, how to select the curriculum-based and standardized assessment tools to evaluate them. You know, we, how do we test them? We, we want to know all those questions. How do we interpret the results? Because it's not just testing, but then what do we do with the results? What do they mean? And we want to develop responsive research-based tier supports and accommodations, of course. So what, we only test them so we can uh, intervene and do something that improves their learning outcomes. So we know that they're not prepared because there's such rapid growth. Uh, I'll show you a slide. There are so many states that used to not have ELL growth, but now they're, uh, the growth is so uh, large that it's, it's almost like we, everybody has to really be aware. Uh, we know that the school systems are not doing a very good job in adequately addressing their needs. There's really disproportionality issues. The younger kids, so maybe before third grade, there's an underrepresentation of uh, kids in special education. And then starting in third grade and, and older, there's all overrepresentation in special education. Now in gifted, there are less kids that are ELLs in gifted education. So we are underrepresenting or underidentifying kids for the gifted program. Uh, we know that there's not enough research or effective instruction for different learners. And it has, of course, negative economic consequences because uh, dropout rates are much higher for ELLs. There are some um, studies that I, I found that they talked about, for instance, in the Hispanic groups, uh, the over 80% of Hispanics that were born in the U.S. do graduate from school. And there was some research that was indicating that in the 40, uh, like over 40% uh, only of ELLs that are immigrants, so they come from different countries uh, that are Hispanic, actually graduate. So that's really alarming. You know, we have to really do uh, something about it so we can improve their uh, outcomes. Now, this is this slide is kind of interesting. It comes from the Migration Policy Institute, and if you're doing anything rega regarding uh, immigrant patterns or when you're doing talks, I love to going to the Migration Policy Institute. It has a lot of data. It's really interesting. But when you, when you look at this slide, you see the different states in the blue, the dark blue. Um, those are the typical states where we would see English language learners. Of course, uh, Florida, I'm in Florida, you know, Texas, California. But now when you see the lighter blue, you know, the number one state with ELL growth is South Carolina. So now we see like South Carolina, North Carolina, we see Kentucky, we see Virginia, we see Kansas, we see, uh, we see Nevada, we see Alabama, we, we see Illinois, so we see uh, Delaware, we see states that in the past uh, didn't have such ELL growth. Uh, growth patterns in a 10-year period go to like 300% in some states. So imagine, you know, in, in just like the very near future is going to be even more and more because we're seeing that the migration patterns are increasing and not decreasing. 
So this is a little bit of information, just like about the top five languages in the U.S. total. And of course, Spanish being the largest, but Chinese is getting up there, uh, Vietnamese, Korean, Tagalog. Now, it depends on areas. Like I, I was just recently in Alabama doing a presentation and Spanish was not the, you know, it was the largest, but I think for Alabama was maybe 7%. So they had languages from like so many other can countries and uh, people were uh, just naming some of the other languages. So when we talk about, you know, and I think Rebecca, you were uh, talking about at the beginning that survey about like, I think eight responded um, that the bilingual school psychologists are the ones that do the assessments. Mm -hmm. But I think about this, I'm bilingual, and yes, I do the assessment, but I'm bilingual Spanish, Spanish-English. What about a Vietnamese kid? I'm bilingual, but I don't speak Vietnamese. Uh -huh. So I have to be trained to work with a Vietnamese kid. So in essence, we no longer can leave it up to the bilingual school psychologists to be the ones training in non-discriminatory assessment and multicultural practice. We have to really train ourselves, all of us, right? Um, then I have enrollment by, by race, you know, different percentages of Hispanic always, you know, uh, is the second largest compared to white, but then you have Asian, black, and so forth. And then free and reduced lunch, um, I have it here, if you see 43% free and reduced, uh, free, free lunch, that means the lowest CS kids. And I put this here because when you work with ELLs, um, and, and when you learn about ELL practice, you think that everything you know is sort of applicable to low SES kids. And the reason why I'm saying that is because kids that are low SES typically don't have the exposure to language that kids that have, you know, higher means do. For instance, the, the schools that are more privileged, privileged, that have, you know, maybe the PTA is, you know, full of parents that are like middle, upper class and whatnot, they do all kinds of activity, activities. In Orlando, I know my kid used to go to Epcot Center, you know, for, for their, uh, for their uh, uh, going from school, take the school class uh, to, to study, you know, growth of, of uh, plants and so forth, so forth, they would go to Epcot. However, a Title I school, they could only go to a petting farm locally or somewhere where they could only spend like $11 going, you know? So here's one, you know, rich school, if you would, and then there's the other one that only gets access to so much. So low SES kids also have language uh, problems and that affect their learning. So really, you should consider, you know, that as, as, a, a, as an area that you have to uh, really uh, change your practice as well. So this position statement that NASP, and you mentioned it, you know, NASP published a position statement uh, on the uh, provision of school psychological services to bilingual students. We basically, a group of us, uh, got together and um, very uh, proud to be part of this group. And they're amazing bilingual school psychologists and uh, that uh, Sam Ortiz is always, you know, a lot of people know him and he was my mentor and he's amazing at, uh, you know, delivering this message. But uh, basically... Uh, NASP now recognizes that all of all school psychologists need to be trained in bilingual uh, services. So it's not just for monolingual, for bilingual, or those of us that speak two languages, but it's for all of us. Mm -hmm. So part of this um, uh, position statement talks about the role of the school psychologists that we have to engage in culturally and linguistically responsive practice, right? 
So we have to have all this training that includes different aspects of language acquisition and, uh, and instructional strategies, interventions. So it's not just assessment, but we have to understand instruction. We have to understand what the teachers are doing in the schools. Because when we go to assess the kids, it's, no, it's not just that standardized testing, the typical IQ achievement process, deficits, and so forth. We really have to understand instruction because for the most part, if um, they're struggling, sometimes that there are issues with the instructional practice that we have to be aware of. Also, we have to become experts so we can um, collaborate with them and we can consult. So our assessment has to use valid, reliable methods and tools. Um, if possible, native language. Again, I'm bilingual Spanish, but if I get a kid that speaks Tagalog, I should be able to test them, and I should learn how to do it you know, uh, with, to the best of my ability, not knowing the language. But if there is a native language speaker, and if you know of a school psychologist uh, that does speak the language, you know, that's, of, of course, um, better. Uh, then that knowing that nonverbal does not guarantee validity and reliability, and I'm going to talk a little bit about that. Uh, talking about the norms, we have to know that the norms are not adequate for every ELL, so if even if it's normed in Spanish, it doesn't mean that it's normed for that particular group, because Spanish in Puerto Rico may be different than Spanish in you know, some South American country. The words may be different. So the monolingual school psychologists require training in the use of interpreters and awareness of reliance on interpreters. So not just the monolinguals, but, you know, me, I'm bilingual, but I may test somebody in, you know, uh, in uh, French, for instance, and need an interpreter. So how do I do it? I have to teach the interpreter on what, you know, what to do before interpreting my test. So interpreter training in itself is huge. We have to really learn how to do it. Like before I do a low incidence language, such as French or, you know, in my, in my schools, I didn't have a large French population, but I did test somebody in French. I had to meet with an interpreter, test, teach them issues of, you know, standardized testing. What does it mean? Um, issues of confidentiality, issues of, uh, you know, Staying within the parameters, not like over-interpreting what they're what what's happening. Uh, issues of like culture, uh, the test itself that took like three hours right there. You know, so uh, it's not just like grabbing somebody down the hall and here let the custodian come and help me interpret the test. You can't do that. It's impossible. You know, you they're not going to be trained to do that. We talked about consultation. That that was part of the, of the position statement. We have to become the experts so we can help the teachers with instructional practice, um, so they know to include those cultural considerations um, about the group, the family, uh, sharing knowledge, and so forth. So what happens is if they have a student, you know, say somebody came from um, India to the school and they don't really have a large population from India, then we should be able to go and research India. What is the educational system like? What are the customs for that group? What do they do about school? How do the parents support the, the kids? Uh, the internet is amazing these days. We can find a whole lot of information about the country. So we should be doing that and we should be consulting the teach with the teachers.
And then the bilingual position statement talks about systemic intervention and advocacy. We need to do a really um, uh, integrative model or like we have to integrate all of the services available in the school for these kids, not just instruction, not just assessment, but what else is available for them. You know, we have to engage in learning experiences and then we have to do the MTSS process to the best of our, our ability, of course, because they will benefit from it. Then prevention and intervention in the position statement, we talked about using the multi-tier model, of course, MTSS, you know, uh, with evidence-based instruction to meet the linguistic and academic needs of the students. We have to have a continuum of language acquisition supports, starting from tier one all the way throughout, right? And then uh, our program should integrate the cultural and linguistic factors. It has to have quality of instruction. So are the teachers really engaging in culturally responsive practice? What curriculum are they using? This is very important. Curriculum to me is like one of the biggest things because sometimes when we, we concentrate on tests and so forth, right? But Curriculum being used in the classroom also has validity and reliability as far as the ability of that particular curriculum to improve ELL's academic outcomes. For the most part, um, nowadays, the different publishers that are used to implement the curriculum, and the majority of uh, most states use Common Core, uh, but those publishers, be it Mifflin or you know whatever publish, publisher, they have a component for ELLs. I've seen that a lot. Are the teachers using those components for ELLs within their practice? When I worked in the schools, I found that not everybody even, you know, even opened that book that is like an, an additional, um, you know, book for ELL practice. So what is it that they're doing to improve ELL outcomes? So we have to kind of like be really, um, Cognizant, we have to know what's happening, right? And also, are they implementing the curriculum with fidelity? That's that's another check. So we should consider all of that, all of that in uh, our practice. And then family school collaboration. Uh, this is so important. And I talked about that student from India. If we know the conventions from their country, how are we going to reach out to families? Because the the parents they really do have a role in their kids' instruction. So I remember many years ago, and I don't remember what country it was, but there was a family that came to my elementary school, and something was happening with the child, and I kept calling dad uh, because mom, they said mom didn't speak English, so I would call the house, and I tried to, I left messages for dad, and then, you know, me, uh, that I'm so interested in these ELL issues, I had gone to um, the... I had gone to, um, you know, internet to research a little bit about it, and I found out that in their country, uh, women do not call men, for instance. Uh -huh. So that was a cultural barrier. You know, I, I had been leaving, leaving messages and so forth, so for the dad, that was a little bit forward. Uh, it wasn't sort of like accepted that, um, you know, that I did that. So we, we have to understand the role of parents, but we have to understand their culture as well. So um, we have to understand the group differences, cultural groups, and the language preferences, and so forth, use interpreters when we have them over for meetings, ensure that they understand, because a lot of parents say yes, 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 they don't understand. You have to make 
school welcoming for them. They have to feel welcome. So what is it that you're doing to have them feel welcome? So that is basically the position statement and you know we have like different areas but uh, I, uh, I think you uploaded, uh, Rachel, I think you uplo uploaded the position statement, is that right? Yep, it's located in the, the Google Drive, so okay. um, that's on the Facebook page. Yes, okay, so if not, you know, you can Google um, the NAS position statement on the provision of school psychological services to bilingual students, and it will pop up, and you can download it as well from the NAS website. So it's very important, you know, do read it. It has more than I have in these slides, but, you know. So um, anyway, so, so any questions so far before I keep going? I have a question, <laughs> if I could jump in. Um, you said that, you know, there's this need for school psychologists, all of us, to be aware of ELL issues and to be able to assess and intervene um, with this, these types of students. Do you see, um, as far as graduate training programs, um, do you see that there's more of a push in these programs to provide school psychologists with um, a stronger background to handle those issues? And also, um, where does that leave people that maybe go to school specifically for you know, ELL evaluation and whatnot? What, what is their program? Are we phasing that out? and and you know, addressing right. this with everyone, or where do you see that heading? Right. So there are no uh, the training programs are uh, it varies. Some training programs have uh, classes in multicultural practice and and whatnot. Uh, but the depth that is really required is very scarce. So there is not you know there are some programs that do a better job. So if you are really interested in getting trained, my suggestion would be to kind of seek out those programs that actually the faculty is, you know, engaged in multicultural practice. Maybe they do presentations. And like the, most of the members of the writing group, for instance, from the position statement, they're faculty members. So they are really interested and they really do a good job with training their uh, school psychology trainees. So, uh, but there's, there's, uh, not every single program has that, uh, you know, ability to really go in depth and uh, and really uh, talk about all of these issues. So more and more, however, programs are really as, uh, identifying diversity. NASP is really doing a good job at uh, really improving the uh, talk about diversity in their practice. And you know, we have a, the NASP model for services, and uh, it it does talk about diversity, but the programs. The training programs need to uh, improve a little bit in that not all the programs, but some programs do need to improve, yes. Yeah, can, can I ask you, Monica, can you talk a, a little bit, and maybe you'll get to it actually later, but you mentioned the over-representation of ELL students after third grade. How, how are we, now, now that we are aware of that, how, how do you think that school psychologists across the country are dealing with that? It seems like a, a really big problem because um, it's in direct conflict with their, with their free and appropriate public education. So what are we doing about that? Right. So um, I think uh, I, I just stopped sharing for now so I can uh, talk to you guys. Uh, you know, the, the problem with the over-representation is that the majority of ELL kids that are struggling, you know, do have some 
uh, may, ha may have some problems from their native language or where they come from, may have had some issues, but the majority of them are, re are identified as having uh, learning problems, but in fact, it's a second language problem. So it's a lack of instructional support problem. It's a problem of not providing the uh, best instructional practice or not understanding how they learn. Um, one of the issues I see, I, and I've seen in the school psych forum a couple of uh, questions like this. I have seen that there's sort of like a belief out there that when I, whenever an ELL kid is brought to the table, they say, oh, I have somebody that is here five months and, you know, they have brought him to test because he's not doing well and he's struggling. And it's sort of like a blanket statement, oh, we can't even touch that kid and we can't test that kid because he is an ELL and he just got here, so we shouldn't test that kid. Well, my thought is anybody that is struggling, a school psychologist should actually be involved. No matter if the child is ELL, monolingual, trilingual, however many languages that child speaks, we don't want to deny services. Now, it is what we do with our assessment and how we assess that kid and how we interpret the assessment that should change, right? So if I, uh, an ELL that came here five months ago is struggling, what I would do is then you have to look at all of the instructional practice, what's happening in the classroom, what type of curriculum are they, uh, are they using, what, um, what interventions are, are they using, are they appropriate for ELLs or are, are they not really uh, research-based to work with ELLs. Uh, so I want to know instructional practice. I want to know history. I want to know how were they doing in their home country. And also, wherever they came from, is instruction uh, a strength in that country? Are they, doing, are they doing well when we compare them to other international benchmarking? Not sure if you're aware, but the uh, Organization of Economic Development, they did some um, uh, interesting international uh, benchmarking. And the PISA scores, a program for international student assessment, they have like 30-some countries represented, whoever participated. And uh, some countries, you know, do really poorly. They, they are very low uh, when it comes to standard instruction when we compare country to country. So if a child comes from a country where instructional practice is not up to par, so and then they come here and they're struggling, is it really because they're not learning or is it really because they have not been instructed? So a school psychologist should be able to understand, again, you know, the instructional practice, not just here, but in their home country. So do a little bit of research to be able to understand that child's background. Um, sometimes we can't tell from, what, from our assessment whether they have a disability or a learning disability or not because it's too early and too premature. But by all means, don't turn them away because it's only been five months or three months or even a year or two. Um, we need to understand why is it that they're struggling. And then sometimes all we can get is baseline. Sometimes, okay, let's do good diagnostic measures, be curriculum-based or standardized. So we can get a baseline of where they are today and then implement the best instructional practice 
So we can progress monitor those kids and definitely, you know, graph that uh, growth to see if the slope is improving and it would get them to the goal. And if they're not improving, are they not improving because of instructional practice or because they really do have a, a disability? So don't turn kids away just because they were just, they just arrived. Yeah. arrived. Our job is bigger than that. Our job is not just testing to identify a disability. Our job is to analyze everything, testing sometimes, but sometimes we can, um, you know, we definitely need to uh, develop or help develop all the interventions in, um, in the schools. So, yeah. sure. And I'm wondering, too, about the opposite of that, about, so if we're not, we're not if we find with with you know best practices that it is an ESL issue but say in third grade they're still not reading um, at the level that they need to be reading to 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 progress and to learn at the at the third grade pace and differentiation is just um, too difficult because they're so behind because of their um, English language learner uh, position, do you then refer them to special ed only because they're an English language learner, or do you try to keep them within the RTI, RTI process? So if I understand the question is, if they're in third grade and they're struggling, and and it, it's because they're an ELL, mm -hmm. what do you do? Do you refer them to ESC, or do you keep them within ELL? So they're only a... a uh, they only have a disability if they would have it or it would manifest in their native language. So sometimes you don't know that because you may not speak the language of the child, right? So me being bilingual Spanish, I would be able to test and do my assessment in Spanish and determine whether the child, you know, that, that disability does manifest in their home language or not. Um, but again, it really will depend on you know the child. So say for the for this conversation, if he was a Spanish speaker, um, and then he was struggling, and I did my assessment, you know, in Spanish, uh, that child was just here a year ago. So I have enough instruction to be able to tell. So if the child is in fifth grade, he should have uh, stopped learning a year ago because they just got here a year ago. So he should show at least third to fourth grade skills, right? If I tested them in Spanish and academically they stopped learning in Spanish, so I have to take that into consideration. So if the child is not doing well in their native language, then I would assume if considering that he was struggling or he had a history of struggling, that he has a, a learning disability or some difficulty, then I would refer to ESE. But again, it's important to take history to understand where they come from and all of those issues that we talked about. We can't just like make a blanket statement. Everybody that is A or B goes to C. We have to do it case by case. So wow. it really all depends. It's very complicated. It's very complicated. And I guess I'm thinking more of the um, English language learners that, that, are, uh, that speak a, la a native language that we don't have um, a bilingual psych for. So say um, the language from the Philippines, if we don't have that person and they're still not progressing at the rate we would like to, then it seems to me that putting them in, in a, a 
in special education is a way to kind of slow things down so that that so that we can sort of scaffold progress a little bit, even though they may not have a, a learning disability, if, if that makes sense. Right. And I think that may be the reason why they're overrepresented in, yeah. Yeah, yeah I guess some um, there's an argument that, of course, if they're in a smaller, uh, smaller group, everybody that is in a smaller group could, you know, we could argue anybody that is in a smaller group and with the instructional strategies and so forth uh, would improve. However, that also the other side of the coin is that kids that are ELLs need to be exposed to regular education and the, the same content as kids that are not ELLs. So you shouldn't like wash down their curriculum and make it less uh, intense just because they're ELLs. What you need to do is you should deliver the curriculum and then do the strategies to be able to make it understandable so it's manageable to scaffold learning but you still expose them to the regular curriculum. It sounds like it would be too much but if you start washing down the curriculum and if, and if you give them like say they're in third grade and you're giving them kind of like second grade level because it's easier on them and so forth. Well guess what? Next year it's going to be a snowball. The gap is going to be bigger. And then the year after, the gap is going to be even bigger. So research has indicated, has shown that they actually need to learn through content. So they need to learn through the content being taught in the classroom, but using ELL strategies. What strategies would that be? So instead of like saying, uh, uh, giving them text that is rich with rich vocabulary that they need and so forth, uh, just doing, you know, big passages, maybe chunk it, do a little bit, maybe a paragraph, and then you break it down. Teach them vocabulary first. Uh, teach them the background information that they would need in order to improve that text so they can understand when they read it. So they're not just reading it cold, but you still give them the rich text that you would give a monolingual speaker. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that's such an important point and such a, a complicated piece of it, but but a really important distinction. Thank you. Sure. And I really like, um, yeah, your comment about, um, I've seen those same comments on the forum about, you know, this kid just came over from whatever country and the parent wants me to test them, so, you know, I can't, obviously. So how do I go about, you know, explaining that to the parent? and you know, that shouldn't always be the case. I've seen a school try and deny testing for a student because he just came over. And, you know, once I laid eyes on the student, I could tell that, you know, there were significant concerns. You know, the student was likely on the spectrum, and there was a lot going on. Mm -hmm. And so I'm kind of like, no, I wouldn't say, you know, don't test. Like, we need we need to be working towards something. We need to at least get that baseline that you talked about. So that's a really good point. We, we right. shouldn't be afraid to test and to work with these students just because there's an ELL issue. Right. So something that always comes up in the trainings that I do that I'll mention before I forget is low, low, assuming that you know we're bilingual or I'm bilingual but I don't speak every language. So you guys are out there in the schools and you're going to get everybody. And yes, eight, eight out of what is it, 20 that respond and may say that they have a bilingual person in their team. But what about all these other languages, right? There's like 400 different languages. So what, what if you get a Chinese Mandarin a speaking child or whatever. 
So uh, how do you do low incident language testing? If you're, if you're it, how do you do it? Uh, I get asked that question a lot. And the response is, it all depends. But I'm going to give you kind of like a little bit of a rundown of what I do. So maybe it's helpful, OK? One of the most important things that I do for any assessment of my bilingual cases is to get a measure of their oral language proficiency. If, if they have been here a couple of months, um, you know, maybe they have been exposed to a little bit of language, or sometimes they come with some English. We don't know. You know, we really don't know. But we have instruments out there. Um, I, I, I really like the uh, Wuka Johnson oral language battery. It just, uh, the Wuka Johnson 4, I used to use the Wuka Munoz language survey. But even if I don't speak, say, Chinese Mandarin or, uh, you know, uh, uh, Hurdu or French or whatnot, if you get a measure of oral language proficiency and the kid has been here a couple months or a year or two years, you get an idea what their oral language proficiency is. You get an idea like if it's fluent, limited, very limited, negligent, right? So if it's negligent and, you know, they're sitting in a classroom and instruction is in English, you can make a lot of hypotheses right there. But also, it helps me select the batteries and what batteries are going to be um, are going to be good for those kids or not. So, say that I have a kid that speaks, um, you know, an Arabic language. One, you know, Arabic has many variations. So, I would yes, maybe do a nonverbal for IQ, but you have to be careful with nonverbal tests. And I think in the position statement, I did say that I, I was going to address it. Nonverbal does not mean that there's no language whatsoever because there's some type of communication and even in a nonverbal test that is language. So even if you're doing pantomime, you know, what who's to know that you know an expression like this would not be uh, something offensive in their language, but it's a form of communication. But also make sure you know the difference between nonverbal and low verbal. So the special nonverbal composite, for instance, for the DAS, if you use the DAS or DAS, it has instructions in English. So even though it's a nonverbal composite, you're still asking in English. So that is not a true nonverbal, it's just a language reduced test. Or if you have the you know nonverbal uh, of the WIPSI, right? The nonverbal index of the WIPSI, instructions sometimes may be given in English. So be careful when you think of nonverbal because it doesn't mean it's unbiased. It doesn't mean that the norms are good for the population. But sometimes that's the best you can, and you can make hypotheses. I take very special care when it's a kid that are look, they're looking at the child for identification and the IND program. So, you know, I don't want to determine the IND program, uh, intellectual disabilities program. I try to do even two measures if I can or, or, or whatnot, right? And then for academics, sometimes all I can do is get a baseline if I'm going to do standardized testing. I try to get a baseline of every area of reading I can and math and so forth. But I also do an assessment of the curriculum of how they're improving. I look at all of that. I look at the baseline when they started. How have they progressed? I look at all the assessments that were given in the classroom. But also, I do an assessment of their cultural background. For instance, is their language the same as English? 
what about print directionality, where they came from? Arabic, they don't write the same alphabet as we do, right? They don't, uh, other countries, for instance, they, they write from top to bottom, not, you know, not from left to right, and Arabic is from right to left. So all of those issues I have to assess, that's part of my assessment. I have to look at all of those things because otherwise I'm not really, I'm really not doing a very good job in identifying, you know, all of those patterns. Um, also in selecting instruments, if the oral language in English is, is adequate, I may be able to do some measures, uh, for instance, memory, maybe visual memory, maybe something if they understand the task, maybe I can measure that, but then of course verbal memory, if I'm doing uh, memory for stories or something like that, that is too language loaded, right? And then the test selection is very important too. Um, you guys may be familiar with the owls or you know tests tests that are very culturally and I can't, I can't this is a public uh, podcast so I can't uh, say some of the uh, items but sometimes items are um, you know very culturally biased tests that use numbers uh, you think that are okay because numbers are okay they're universal and so forth but for instance, division, the way we do division in South America, the, the way we lay it out on the paper is completely different than the way it's laid out here in the U.S. So here the answer is at the top. The answer when you, you do division in South America is at the bottom. So little things like that you have to consider when you're doing your assessment. Also, think about the syllables and numbers. Do not translate on the spot. And one uh, example I use is, uh, the number one, for instance, and think of a test that uses numbers that you repeat. So the number one has uh, one syllable in English, and in Spanish, for instance, it has two syllables, uno, one. So when you're asking a kid to repeat numbers, you're actually changing the cognitive demand of that particular task. Mm. So you know what, what task I'm talking about. You guys are school psychologists, so I don't have to say yeah. the test, but... Um, so when you're asking a child to repeat numbers, that the cognitive demand changes because it's a different language. So if the child speaks more Spanish and you're asking the number one, the cognitive demand completely changed. So you can't use that, the same norms now, right? Yeah. So when you're selecting tests, don't think that, oh, it's numbers, it's easy, it's no problem. No. The norms, if, 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 you know, if, if you change that, you're completely changing the demand and now the norms are going, not going to be valid. So if one test, like you know, an intelligence test, has one subtest that is not valid for that population for many reasons, and yet you're using a full scale, then the whole full scale is not valid because only one subtest, right? So you have to be very careful when you uh, select your tests. So um, you know, it depends on the child what uh, uh, process test I may use. I try, you know, sometimes you can only use the nonverbal ones uh, or the ones that are like spatial type uh, abilities that the child may be able to to do, um, you know, uh, like the copying of, of shapes and, you know, VMIs and things like that, depending on, you know, the different deficits. The ones that are language loaded are very difficult to, to measure when it's a low incidence language. It's not impossible, you know, a test like the BVAD, the Bilingual Verbal Ability Test, has, I think, 18 other languages that you can give it in. So you give 
the English version for verbal ability and then somebody else will do the uh, other language and of course if you have somebody that speaks the other language but there are some uh, tests out there but for the most part testing somebody in low incidence languages requires a lot of homework a lot of testing uh, or, or, or knowing about you know their cultural background their uh, what they know in their native language what language conventions there are whether it's an opaque versus and transparent language and that means is there one-to-one -one correspondence between a sound and a letter, like Spanish, a, e, e, o, o, only one sound in English, a, could be a or a, right? So all of those things you have to kind of assess, that becomes part of your assessment. And then at some point you may be able to determine that there's a disability, but, you know, not always. So, um, so it's not easy. It, it's very complicated, and if you're going to do it for the first time, I would suggest at least develop a consultation uh, group. You know, um, maybe locally you have people that are do bilingual assessment. They may not speak the language, but at least maybe they have some training mm -hmm. uh, in bilingual assessment or, or second language learning. And on that note, to be honest, I would rather have a monolingual English-speaking like uh, school psychologist that has been trained in bilingual assessment and non-discriminatory assessment do an assessment that somebody that speaks the language that is bilingual but has no training in bilingual assessment or culturally diverse issues or linguistically diverse issues. Mm -hmm. So cultural competence training is best always. Such good information. I'm, I'm learning so much. Um, and I know that we're kind of, we've got 10 minutes left, um, so I don't know if you have uh, other points that you want to make. I did have a question about the culture language matrix, just because that comes up as a tool, but um, whatever you want to address, you know, I don't want to <laughs> limit you on what you want to talk about. Um, no, I think, I mean, I had slides, but I think we, we you know, talked a lot about, um, oh, I had that Bix and Cop slide. I think I'm going to go back to it real quick. Um, are, you, are you guys familiar with Bix and Cop? Had you ever heard of that before? Yes? No. no? Okay. So I guess it's it really all depends on uh, different people. But uh, uh, Jack Cummins talked back in the 80s, talked about Bix and Cop, and that's uh, basic interpersonal communication skills, and Cop is cognitive academic language proficiency. And basically in the second language acquisition process, um, the first two years or so of a child being in the U.S., uh, he or she is developing the basic interpersonal communication skills, and that means, you know, they kind of develop that conversational fluency, pronunciation, vocabulary, grammar, and then um, they uh, basically, because they're young, they sometimes their articulation is sounds almost native. When they're very young, um, the elementary years and whatnot, you hear teachers say, oh, you know, he has been here for only a year, but he sounds so fluent. He's so fluent. He's talking to everybody, but they're raising their hand. May I use the bathroom? I want to go, you know, here and there and so forth. So uh, they sound fluent, but really that's basic conversational fluency. But the in-depth language that one needs in order to manage academic demands it's basically uh, the abstract language for academic work, 
that complex language that you use to analyze, synthesize, evaluate what you are given when you read text, that could develop in six to seven years. Some people say it even takes six to nine years. So imagine um, a child that is in the process. They have been here two years. And after two years, we see a lot of kids being dismissed, right? And uh, that's probably true in you guys where you, where you work as well. I see after two years, they can be tested, and then they test out of ESOL. But the tests that are used for ESOL programs are actually um, are actually not as as complex as one would want in order to determine that language proficiency, that depth. So. Um, it really is. It really is important to know that the fact that they were dismissed from ESOL doesn't mean that they are ready for the world to be tested and considered as the same as a monolingual English speaker. So this is very important to know. And also, when they're they're in in, in instructional uh, environments, they may not have the the language sophistication, of course. So. I just noticed that I never really read all those questions here on the side. So, <laughs> yeah, very fine. Yeah, it's mostly us having questions. <laughs> and I'm just—I work in special ed, so some of my kids—they never pass those proficiency exams. They're, you know, they have bigger deficits, and and so they kind of have SL services forever. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. There's one question. I'm wondering the impact of being born in this country but having parents who uh, raise you with a different language and how the impact, uh, what the impact of the evaluation results are. It's, that's a really interesting question because I think um, I'm going to uh, actually get out of this and maybe I can pull that real quick before we only have a couple of minutes, but I'm going to answer that with a uh, a uh, slide from Sam Ortiz. He's uh, amazing with uh, those types of. Uh, okay, so I got it here, and I'm gonna go back and share. Okay, so this slide it sounds very complicated, but I'm going to kind of walk you through it. Uh, Sam did a little formula, uh, and you know, imagine that you have a child born to Hispanic parents for the sake of argument and the child was born to uh, Spanish-speaking parents, but they were born here in the U.S., and then you were going to compare that child to a monolingual English speaker born in the U.S. Of, uh, as well. So assuming that the uh, English language exposure varies in those two households, uh, the native English speaker uh, is awake 12 hours and asleep 12 hours in their first five years of life, and by the time they enter kindergarten, this line is enter kindergarten age five, the English language uh, speaker, the monolingual English speaker, has 21,900 hours of English exposure. Now, the, the second language learner born to Hispanic parents, but born in the U.S. to Hispanic parents, okay, by the time they enter kindergarten, they only have a little bit over 3,000, it says 3,650 hours of language exposure because they only maybe are exposed to English from TV or the neighborhood, TV in Spanish, maybe commercials in English and so forth, right? And then we compare five years later when they're in 10th grade or 5th, fifth, fifth, in 10 years old or 5th grade. 
the monolingual English speaker now has 47,000 hours of English exposure. The bilingual kid, and now instruction began in kindergarten, he gets more English at home. So the exposure five years later is only 23,000 hours. So the gap five years later is still 24,000 hours of English. Um, so that question, that, you know, whether it makes a difference or not, yes, of course, because if you are, um, if you are uh, born to uh, parents that speak other languages, you are being exposed to less English. Now, it doesn't mean that you go and tell everybody, go speak English at home, don't speak to your children in your native language. No. And on the contrary, you want the kids to be really strong in their native language because uh, especially if they come from other countries and they have some instruction in other countries, those, those skills do transfer. The, the, the academic skills, the reading skills, math skills, they transfer to English. So the more they have, uh, the, the more they develop their native language, the better they're going to be in English. So don't go and tell everybody, don't speak English, at, don't speak your native language at home. I actually want parents to continue speaking to their children and to continue reading to them, to continue developing those phonological skills, to continue developing those reading skills because reading comprehension, for instance, those uh, different skills that are, are required, those do transfer. Phonological skills in many languages do transfer, so you want to encourage the parents to continue uh, helping them and uh, in, in learning their own native language. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. That, I think that's really good advice. That makes a lot of sense to me. Well, we, ha we only have um, two minutes left before 9 o'clock, so we'll have to wrap up soon. Um, there was one question about um, bilingual programs. Do you, do you have any thoughts on those kinds of programs, Ronnie, before we go? What is the question? Um, like immersion programs or programs that are like bilingual. Yes. yes. Uh, the best, the best would be to start kids in bilingual programs. That would be the best, and I wish that every school district had bilingual programs because what we want is they for them to continue developing the native language skills that they have and instruction uh, to continue in their native language, so they can develop CALP, they can develop that strong language, they can de can develop. Uh, strong uh, uh, academic skills that could transfer to English and then do you know fade out or, or start introducing English but that's a luxury that we don't always have so there's some research that is showing that that's really the best that dual language is really the top but then bilingual programs are, are, are good uh, what we don't want is for them to transfer back and forth so if they were already in English for say a year or two years and they're struggling and then we say, okay, let's switch them back to bilingual. Let's let's do that. That back and forth is not beneficial because now they have to get you know go back and learn again. So really, whatever you do from the beginning, you gotta use good instructional strategies that work for ELLs that are research based for ELLs. Awesome. Thank you, Thank so, you much. so much, Monica. Sure. For um, you're amazing. I love your brain. <laughs> we have to wrap up and close it in the class. Thank you again. Um, 
I feel smart, so I need to learn more at the same time. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to have you if we can ever convince you to come back on again and, and do some more. I even have more questions. It's, yeah, very interesting. All right. Okay, well, thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Um, I think our next uh, episode would be December 1st, I want to say. Um, we'll be posting, though. <laughs> We will. We'll be spreading the word. If you have any questions or comments, even later after you watch the um, podcast on YouTube, please feel free to post them on either Facebook page or on Twitter, and we'll try to get them to Monica so that we can continue the conversation. All right. Thank you. Okay.